0: Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Laura and in each recording I'll be meeting a geographer to discuss their research and where geography has taken them. If you've got questions, ideas for topics or simply want to know more about upcoming podcasts follow hashtag Ask the Geographer on Twitter for the latest updates. Traditionally, gentrification has been considered a highly urban process, taking place in cities and towns. But gentrification and its implications for changing landscapes, rising rents, and displacement takes place in rural spaces too. Today, I'm meeting Professor Martin Phillips from the University of Leicester to discuss how TV and media have constructed representations of rural life in Britain, and how often this may belie the realities and challenges of living in the countryside. How are representations of rural places, specifically the British countryside, produced through popular media and television?
1: So representations of uh, rural places in the British countryside are produced through a range of different media. Uh, My own work has been looking at television, films, uh, advertising, uh, but other workers looked at sort of representation of the countryside through literature, through children's toys, through imagery on the internet, through the marketing of food uh, in terms of the packaging and the advertising of food, so a whole range of different media. In my work on terms of television, I did a whole range of different images being used in a range of different programmes. You see them in quite often in children's programmes. But you also see my work is looking at television dramas and films. You see them in sort of one-off dramas. You see them in know, a series. Things like Emmerdale, often in a very positive way, idyllic way. People talk about the rural idyll and how it's being represented through the media. Um, my own work has been a bit cautious about that, so a lot of programmes, if they're drama, they need a storyline, they've got to have a bit of a problem, a bit of grit for the story to develop, so they're not exclusively, I would argue, they're often not exclusively idyllic, but you also see them uh, being very anti-idyllic, you get horror films, uh, you get the scandal dramas uh, that have become uh, sort of very popular over recent years, which are making very much a use of an anti-idyllic view of the countryside.
0: How do these imaginations combine with reality to produce rural environments?
1: Uh, I don't tend to use the distinction between imagination and reality. These sort of representations, images, are part of the reality that surrounds most of us, probably. Um, Dennis Cosgrove once talked about sort of culture being everywhere, and I think you can see that very much in terms of you know, representations of the countryside. In our everyday lives, we use our imaginations as part of that everyday living. So the sort of contrast between imagination and reality is is not one I particularly use in my own work. I like the ideas from Clifford Geertz, who's an anthropologist, who talks about culture being like a spider's web. So some people spin out meanings, spin out a web of meaning. Other people draw upon that meaning as part of their everyday lives and probably sort of change the meanings, create new meanings as part of that. So I tend to focus more on uh, what's in the image and why is it placed there and what are the consequences of those images. And things like television programmes are very much a collective activity. There's lots of people involved in producing them. So there'll be a whole range of different skills and ideas and practices that go together to, to produce that final outcome. So it might not be quite the sort of uh, it might not be quite what any one person expected, uh, one of the things we when we talk to television producers, they often don 't know what works they don 't know why some things are successful and others aren 't it 's sort, of sort of they sometimes tend to follow what 's been previously successful and just reproduce it and maybe it works, or maybe uh, things are not working so much in that way now, so I tend to think about how are they created and then what are the consequences of of those imagery so If you're given a particular image, you think about an idyllic image of the countryside and what's the consequences of that. If somebody thinks the countryside is idyllic or a place of community or a place of nature, will that mean that they go in there expecting there to be a community? Maybe they go in there and create a community because they expect that, or maybe they become disillusioned because it's not quite what they were expecting from the image.
0: So you mentioned Emmerdale, but do you have any other specific examples from your research?
1: So I've worked on uh, a range of different television programs. I've done, uh, I've looked at programs like Heartbeat, which is a very long-running series. I've looked at a range of dramas. I looked at one that was set in Scotland, which was called Monica the Glen. I've done work looking at Australian and New Zealand rural drama programs and sort of comparing uh, those programs. Also looked at how... Things like heartbeat were playing out in Australia and and New Zealand, and whether people were drawing the same sorts of interpretations from those places, from the images in of those places, in those programmes, or whether they were sort of interpreting them very differently. One of the things we found is when you talk to somebody about television, you end up talking about all sorts of different parts of their lives, because people draw on various parts of their lives in terms of how they interpret what's shown in the film and television programme.
0: Your research is focused on rural gentrification. Can you tell me what this means and why it has perhaps been overshadowed by studies of urban places?
1: Okay, gentrification uh, is often seen to be a situation that emerges around three key features. So first of all, there is an in-migration of a group of people who are seen to be either of a higher social class or uh, might be that they're more affluent or they're more asset-rich than the existing group that live in an area. Following that movement in, or as part of that movement in, there is a transformation of the environment where they're living, classically about sort of changing the character of buildings, but might also be the environment around them. And then thirdly, there is a displacement, that the existing people and, and their ways of living uh, become displaced. People move elsewhere as a consequence of um, people moving into those areas. That's very much seen to be... Often see to be an urban process. I would argue that you often see it in the countryside. Uh, why is it less recognised in the countryside is an interesting question that I'm currently trying to work out. Um, it might be partly to there are more, more people researching the urban, uh, and it gets more widely sort of uh, debated and examined. It might be because the process itself is a bit more apparent in cities. So maybe the scale of transformations is quite. Is bigger, uh, and maybe more people are impacted by it, and there is maybe more of a political contest around some of those developments. Uh, it might be because also by that imagery of of the rural idyll and it being a harmonious place, some people maybe don't expect to see it in the countryside, and they don't they understand or they when they see things, they interpret them in a different way within the countryside than they do within urban areas. And then maybe there's also a sort of urban normativity that people, when they hear a process, they immediately think, oh, that must be happening in the cities, and don't think, well, that actually could be happening in other places like the countryside or indeed uh, in suburban spaces. Maybe people think about, have an imagination about gentrification and they th- think about it just impacting central cities. So I think it's a sort of an amalgamation of those features that leads to people maybe thinking or not association, identification with the countryside.
0: And how does this process impact rural landscapes in fairly material ways, fairly visible ways?
1: Uh, OK, so one of the things is that transformation of the environment and the sort of buildings. So the sort of, in the case of rural identification, one of the most classic ways that people come to understand it or see it is through this, the barn conversion, the conversion of a property from an agricultural building into a place of residence. So you get those sorts of uh, transformations of buildings it doesn't have to just be barns it can be a whole series of of buildings that get transformed the countryside has seen a lot of uh, rationalisation of services so you have shops, post offices, pubs closing down and maybe those empty buildings then get repurposed into a residential uh, property Uh, you get uh, new buildings being created as part of that process of people moving in that may not only sort of create new buildings, but also you transform the environment of those uh, villages or areas of the countryside. So you, you lose bits of the countryside or bits of the village as new houses become constructed. Uh, you also have um, you know, transformation maybe of the environment around it that people when they move into a new house might not only change the building, but also change the garden, do new replantings, landscape the garden perhaps. Uh, you have a, maybe a loss of habitats and rootways. so one of the things with the classic uh, barn conversion is that those barns not only were used for agriculture, but they often were a place of r- nesting for barn owls, for instance, so when you convert that into a property, you would displace not only people or the agricultural activities, but also the barn owls or the bats that were also inhabiting those spaces. Uh, And you can get just changes in flora and fauna as people sort of plant their gardens with new sets of of plants. Some of those plants might escape into the wider countryside. That will also transform that environment.
0: Who might be displaced, marginalised, or potentially excluded in this process?
1: Okay, so the classic way that people think about displacement is obviously the less affluent, maybe agricultural working class that maybe can't afford to compete for the housing market. They may also have already left the village as part of agricultural restructuring. So it may be that the, the labour force sort of left the village and they were then empty houses, then became gentrified. So there may be a sort of process of displacement that slightly precedes the process of gentrification, or it may be that they're uh, still living in the village and then house prices increase and they can't afford to maybe... Uh, pay the rent. So the landlord might think, well, it'd be better off if I converted that property uh, either to rent it to a new person coming in or maybe sell it on to somebody who wants to have it as a home and then sort of gentrify the property. Uh, It may be also that uh, often the sort of people become displaced are young people, but they they may be sort of the children of existing residents in villages uh, and they find that they can't afford to leave home and buy a house. Uh, nearby, they have to move somewhere else, maybe into the nearby town, rather than remaining uh, within the village where they've been brought up. Uh, it may be that displacement can occur through sort of subtle ways. As a, as a place changes, people may feel that they no longer feel at home there. That it's quite literally sort of changed the character of the place uh, and the people that they knew and the sort of uh, activities that went on in that place are no longer happening, or not, there's not so many people going to those, so they may, in a sense, choose to go somewhere else because of the character of the place has changed. For me that's also a part of that process of displacement.
0: So we've discussed quite a bit here the British countryside, but is rural gentrification a global phenomenon? Yeah,
1: Interesting question, um, and one we were again trying to sort of understand a bit. It's clear that. What happens in the countryside and in a sort of a rural village in, in Britain is am impacted by what happens in what other areas in wider spaces. So most gentrifiers probably work beyond the place where they live, even if they're working from home, they are probably connecting to clients and colleagues elsewhere. So and they'll be gaining goods and products and foodstuffs from elsewhere. So. Rural communities aren't these sort of isolated havens from modernity and global connections. They're very much part of uh, current life. So it's very much that they are, what happens in these places is connected into what happens elsewhere. One of the things that maybe gentrification, rural gentrification has been encouraged by is some transformations in agriculture. Uh, so there is a notion of a post-productivist transition uh, where maybe sort of land is being, uh, and buildings particularly, are being not, needed for agricultural production so that's part of the reason why barns were there for, to be converted is that they weren't needed for agricultural production so much so farmers could sell off those properties without actually losing the main part of their activities uh, and that's part of sort of transition in agriculture which is very much been connected into sort of global changes also things like housing markets are often increasingly globalized so one of the things that we've noticed is, is the emergence of elite global estate agents that are marketing rural properties to a global audience. Uh, They have international-focused websites. They are selling uh, country living quite explicitly to people who are internationally mobile. Uh, And we've been doing an international study looking at gentrification in the UK, France and the US. Uh, And we found the same estate agents appearing In all the areas that have been selected, very much marketing, in some ways, quite similar ways, uh, in each of these localities. So there's clearly a global estate agent business emerging. Things like people buying housing as a financial asset uh, is also increasingly happening. And people might be buying the houses in the British countryside uh, as a financial asset. And they may not even reside within the UK. It's just a financial asset that will they know will appreciate value. So in all sorts of ways, the identification is is interconnected, it's relational. What happens in some of these places of being gentrified is not conditioned just by what happens there, but is very much conditioned by wider social relations. The sort of second question about how widespread is it is again a very interesting question in the sense we don't know. There aren't enough studies of rural gentrification to really sort of get a clear sense of what the overall pattern is it is clear that it happens in many countries it's not just a british phenomenon so one of the reasons that we've been studying france is people have said oh there isn't gentrification happening in rural france Um, we very much think that it is happening in certain locations within france it's often not described as gentrification but we think it has all those three hallmarks of gentrification Uh, It's certainly happening in areas uh, in uh, Latin America. Uh, There's some interesting examples where people have been migrating to North America for work and then sending remittances back to their uh, relatives in uh, countries in Latin America who have been refurbishing their properties uh, and sort of changing it. So there is sort of a a gentrification process going on there. I've been doing work in uh, Japan, uh, and again, I think you can see processes of gentrification occurring there. And there has been quite a lot of work now emerging in, in places like China, arguing again that you can see these processes of gentrification happening. One of the, the issues is about how it might be happening in different ways in different places, and it may not. Maybe we need to to rethink some of our understandings of that process of gentrification. And learn from what's happening in these places beyond the sort of global north.
0: Thinking of other forms of nature, how might wilderness be gentrified too? Uh,
1: Wilderness uh, is often seen as this natural, unspoiled space, but it's often socially produced. So, nature is is some of these wilderness areas are being have been socially produced, and and they aren't this unspoiled environment. Uh, which obviously is partly what maybe attracts people because they think it is this unspoilt environment. Some of the work they've been doing in the UK has looked at how some of these areas of wilderness... Partly working out where are these areas of wilderness. One of the things, working with people in the US, uh, they go, you haven't got wilderness. We've got real wilderness because it's ours before you get to it. And If we use some of the ways that they've defined wilderness and we apply it to the UK yet yeah, we find no areas fit their definitions of wilderness. So we've been trying to think about our own ways of thinking about wilderness, very much looking at it in terms of places where there may be, seem to be less connection to major urban centres than there are in other areas of the countryside. Um, many of those areas of wilderness have a series of protections placed on them. And partly that might restrict gentrification. Uh, it might restrict the building of new buildings in some places like national parks, although often quite uh, select building is allowed. And again, maybe very people who have high incomes can afford to spend money by building quite uh, high-quality, well-designed buildings that are get-through planning permission. But we've also found that sort of wilderness, that attraction to wilderness often means that the house prices in those areas increase and there is, without that process of redeveloping housing, there is still that process of displacement as existing residents can't afford to live there as rent prices increase. Uh, Things like Airbnb might encourage that sort of increase in in rental prices within certain communities that might displace people. And also there may be gentrification in the areas just neighbouring areas of protection. So one of the things we've identified is that you can see areas sort of around national parks becoming areas which are quite gentrified. Uh, so people have quite good access into wilderness, even if they are not able to actually live within uh, those areas that have been designated as protection. I've been working with Darren Smith, a colleague from Loughborough University, uh, and in an uh, earlier study, he's worked on... Um, Places are in Calderdale, uh, and talks about how there is maybe a different form of gentrification occurring in sort of hilltop or moor top locations than happens within the valley. So, different people groups of people might be attracted to sort of different types of environment, different types of landscape, um, and so uh, yeah, that's that's a very good case study about different groups of people maybe choosing different environments to to move into, and some people moving in wanting that sort of solitary wilderness experience on the more top, while other people might want to live more in a community and may favour more of a valley-type location with a sort of slightly larger settlement. Other examples, there's um, a good study coming out, or just recently out, by Peter Nelson, uh, who's also a colleague on the, the US side, who's looked at uh, sort of gentrification in the Rocky Mountains, and that's an issue about global interconnections. So he's talking about how transformations in agriculture, as part of sort of global restructuring, and the sort of connections between companies, and how that is transforming that environment, and sort of encouraging particular types of gentrification uh, in that area. And that's again a very good case study.
0: Thanks for listening. If you'd like to discover the latest updates on learning resources and events, visit rgs.org forward slash schools or follow us on Twitter at rgs ibgschools.